talking today about making disciples. Jesus commanded us to do this, and when he commands us to do something, we have to do it. It doesn't matter how we feel, unfortunately, because then we never really feel like it was the right time to forgive or to repent or to study the Word, as Brad was saying in his five-minute sermon. And it's here we get a bit tricky because Jesus commanded us to do this, to make disciples. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's very clear. You guys can see it, that Jesus commands this. It's not just some suggestion to follow when we feel like doing it. It's something that each of us in this room and each of us listening in podcast land need to be pursuing every day. If we love him, we'll do as he says. Listen to the language, go and make disciples. What does that mean? How do we do it? So, over the coming weeks, we as a church, we're going to be investigating this. We're going to be looking at a bunch of areas of discipleship. Next week, Paul Hilton, for instance, uh, he's going to be talking about how to construct within us a disciple's heart. And this series is actually going to take us right into July. I hope you're as excited for it as I am. Now, today, the focus is on making disciple, what Jesus commanded. Uh, And I want to say here, in preparing this, I've realized I truly am a disciple of Mr. David Thomas because my introduction has three points, then I have three main points, and my last point has six points. But I'll guide you through it, and in theory, we'll all come out at the end with some new knowledge. Um, it's important that we understand how Jesus made his disciples, obviously, because that's how we need to do it too. We need to be an imitator of Christ. So we're going to have a really in-depth look at what he did in making disciples, and then we're going to look at how we can do some of those things in our lives today. But first, what is a disciple? And I said before, Paul Hilton will be talking at greater length about this next week, but for now, I want to cover three very basic things in our definition of a disciple. Before I go into the three things, I want to read this quote out. This quote is from, uh, I was going to say a great man, he is a great man, David Thomas, Um, and it can be found in his free e-book, Finding a Discipleship Environment, which will be littered throughout this entire sermon and probably the whole series as well. And I love this quote because it really sums up the three things I'm going to be talking about. So discipleship. Discipleship is that process whereby a person becomes a follower of a certain teacher and they are there to imitate the teacher and live out his teachings. So, let's get to point number one. Point number one, a disciple is a follower. Uh, We'll get into this in depth in one of the three main points as well, but for now I want to just say a disciple is a person who follows another. And that word follows is really important. I want you to have a look at something. So Matthew 13, 1 to 3, in the NIV. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, and he goes on to talk about the parable of the farmer sowing his seed, some scattered on the path, etc., etc. 
But I want you to have a look at, well, if I had my slide, I wanted you to have a look at the words that I'd underlined. The words, such large crowds gathered around him. All the people stood on the shore. And a little bit longer, a little bit further along, it says Matthew 13, 10 to 11. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. See that word that's underlined up there? Time and time again in Scripture, there is a real distinct difference made between the disciples and then the crowds he taught. And notice what he actually said there. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, my disciples, but not to them, the crowd. So in other words, a disciple is given a far deeper insight into the teaching the leadership, the thoughts, the methods, the habits, the mentorship of the person who disciples them as compared to a person who simply sits on the shore and listens to the teaching. So a disciple is a follower of the disciple maker and is given greater insight into that person's teaching. Point number two, I think we can sometimes misunderstand what a disciple is. Because it's such an old term, feels a bit old, we can sometimes think that a disciple is only related to a follower of Jesus. But this is not necessarily so. We can see via John and the reference to his disciples that a disciple is not just a follower of Jesus, but a follower of a person. Luke 7, 18 to 19. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? This is also littered throughout the Old Testament as well. You've got Aaron being a disciple of Moses, and you've got Elisha being a disciple of Elijah. And the reason I mention this is because we need to be very aware of who we allow to disciple us. In the world, these people can be known as life coaches, mentors, therapists, psychologists, or mum, dad, brother, sister, friend, best friend, we really need to be careful that whoever is discipling us is actually a godly person. Because if we're following somebody who is not godly, then we're being discipled clearly by the wrong person. Make sure that whatever a person is saying to you aligns with Scripture, and make doubly sure that the person discipling you is themselves in an intimate relationship with Christ. And this is, uh, this is crucial. If you want to be truly discipled, the way that God wants you to be. You need to be discipled by a person who is themselves a disciple of Christ. Um, and again, finding that discipleship environment, David Thomas's free ebook, www.life-house.net slash f-a-d-e.pdf. Honestly, go and read it. Um, really will equip you with a lot of this stuff that we're talking about today. So to a disciple, a disciple is a follower of a person. And point number three, what a disciple is, a godly disciple is an imitator of Christ. So I've made this picture up on the screen. I think you'll agree that it uses the greatest art techniques known to, to man. Uh, because I want to get a few things just clear and distinct in, in our minds before we continue. First of all, I hope this is a picture that none of us are in tune with. Notice the disciple and the disciple maker. The disciple maker here is clearly being worshipped by the disciple. And you might laugh at this. You might think, that's silly. No disciple maker would want their disciple to worship them. But it's something that we need to be wary of. 
taking any of the glory for, our side, for ourselves, oh, I figured that out for you, or I helped you do that. Christ did that. If we take the glory onto ourselves, we're going to get into a lot of trouble. We as disciple makers, we can't do that. We're not to be worshipped. This is not how we operate. So the big red cross through this, that one. Now, the second picture, here's how a disciple and a disciple maker's relationship works. And I'm going to read that quote from David Thomas again. Discipleship is that process whereby a person becomes a follower of a certain teacher and they are there to imitate the teacher and live out his teachings. They are there to imitate the teacher and live out his teachings. Now, notice this picture. Both the disciple and the disciple maker are in intimate relationship with Christ. Both are worshipping Christ as the one true Lord. That's how it needs to operate. But notice the arrow down the bottom there that I've drawn from the disciple to the disciple maker. The disciple is learning how to be a true worshipper, follower, and an imitator of Christ through watching the disciple maker and the disciple maker's life. How is our relationship with Christ lived out in our lives day to day? Because it's this that the disciple will be watching. It's this they'll learn from. We have to always point back to the author and perfecter of our faith, always. That's how true discipleship needs to function. Now, I have three points that I'm going to expand on about the life of a disciple and the life of a disciple maker. We're going to have a look at how Jesus made his and then look at it, what exactly we can do to follow in his footsteps. So point one, follow and lead. When Jesus made his first disciples, he said something really cool, I think is really crucial for us to understand if we are to gain insight into this relationship. This is one of the first things he actually does in his public ministry. So he's been born, obviously. Then he's baptized by John when he hits 30, we think. And there's maybe one or two sneak peek events where he helps his mum turn the water into wine and, oh, I wasn't supposed to do that, but you're my mum. Um, but then he goes straight out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan and then he comes back and then this is one of the first things he does. He goes and makes disciples. Matthew 3, 18 to 20. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now he uses that word here. That's so vital. Follow me. It's this that I want to look at and unpack a bit because this is key to how we disciple a person. So can I have the next slide, please? Uh, here this in Greek is duty. I hope I'm... I, yeah, anyway. Which actually means come hither come here in an exclamatory way. And so they used this when people were commanding it. It wasn't actually like when, uh, you know, hey, come follow me over here, we'll go for a nice walk or stroll together. It's if a commanding officer were ordering a soldier, come here, come hither, follow me. But this is not the follow I actually want to unpack. What we want to look at is akuli, oh, I practice this, akuluthio, which stems from the prefix a, which in context here actually means likeness or union. I think is really interesting when we're talking about followers of Christ, that part of the word used to describe them is union. And kaluthios, which means a way. So put together, this actually means one going in the same way. 
This word is actually used 77 times in the New Testament to describe people following Jesus and one other time, which has to do with following the guy who goes to get the donkey so Jesus can walk triumphantly back in it, which is important too. So follower of the donkey guy is also important, but mostly used to describe the followers of Jesus. Now, why is this important? It's important because to be an effective disciple, you have to follow the discipler. You can't just listen to them. You need to follow their lead. And this is what you need to do, be as a discipler. You'll need to be a leader. It's not enough to simply meet up with this person and tell them what they need to change about their lives if you are not actively trying to change to conform to the likeness of Christ alongside them. You have to disciple them and not just teach them. You have to teach them and show them what a godly life looks like. And I think there's a big difference. Now, take a look at this picture. I found this on Facebook, and it was talking about the business world, but I think this can really apply to the role of discipleship. So that top image, that's the sermonizer. That's what I'm doing right now. And obviously, this is so important in the body of Christ. Obviously, we need this type of teaching. God can illuminate heaps for people from this pulpit. I would totally believe that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here. But on its own, that's not discipleship. To truly disciple a person, you need to come alongside the disciple and actually lead them, be out in front. Notice this is what Jesus does. His disciples, especially the 12, literally travel with him everywhere. And if a person doesn't literally drop everything and just follow Jesus and focus on him, he gets quite troubled about what sort of life that person's going to have afterwards. Have a listen to this. Luke 9, 57 to 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. And again, that's the command form of follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So in the disciple's heart, there needs to be this massive shift so that they desire to follow Jesus, and in doing that, follow the disciple-maker. It is not enough to simply sit on the bank of the river and listen to sermon after sermon. The disciple has to follow. They have to put aside things like pride and actually follow the lead of the person who's discipling them. So what does this mean for us, disciple-makers, as we're commanded to do? Simple, really. We need to make ourselves leaders in all areas of our lives, and real leaders, we need to show people the way to go by living that life ourselves. It's far easier to show a person where they need to go than to tell them they learn more. And there's that old adage that I know David Thomas has drilled into the back of my head through discipling me, which is, more is caught than taught. And I think that's really true. So I want to share a story. I am blessed to say that I am one of David Thomas's disciples, and how he disciples people is pretty... Um, amazing, honestly, it is amazing. The number of things to learn from even his process is astounding. Uh, he meets with people every two weeks for an hour of teaching, chatting, lessons, goal setting, issue raising, and just generally being cool. 
and he disciples people too from this pulpit, and just in conversation in day-to-day life. But the place that I've learned the most from David Thomas is the gym. There was a few years ago when he said to me in one of these mentor sessions, he said, I want you in that gym, and he did that David Thomas thing where he looks at you and he points at you like this. I don't know whether you guys have experienced that. I want you in that gym at least four times a week for a whole year because I want to show you something. And, you know, I had no idea what he was on about, and because of a bunch of, let's be plainly spoken, excuses I came up with, I really did struggle to get there week in, week out. In fact, out of the whole year, I'm sure there were barely two weeks that went by where I was actually committed to what David Thomas wanted me to commit to. It was, you know, it's a, it's a hefty commitment, but how many lessons are there in that? What was he teaching me? Be committed. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be like the people they, that they speak about in Revelation. Show up, put in. Don't sit on your butt day in, day out, you know, like I was doing. Sometimes for reward, we have to go through a trial. And this may sound silly, like lifting weights is a physical trial, but it's hard. And after that whole year, what I learned was immense, being immersed in that for a whole year. But this wasn't even what he was getting at. At the end of the year, I still hadn't figured out what he was getting at. Um, And I asked him, I said flat out, so what was this year about? We've been a whole year, what's this year about? And he said, I wanted you to see how strong you are. Which is a simple lesson, sort of, but not for me. I'd spent years, my life, believing myself to be incredibly weak. In fact, most of my years, I never even tried to test myself physically for fear of failing. And finally, I discovered through hard work and persistence that I was strong in Christ, that I had a strength that I had what it took. And now, let's circle all the way back to my main point, David Thomas was always, every day, in there pushing far heavier weights than me. Every day. He did not sit idly by and wait for my report as I reported back about my progress in the gym. He was in there leading me, showing me how to stand with my back straight, encouraging me, teasing me, when I was letting myself down, if I said, oh, I'll just do 80 kilos, on, he's like, what's that, Ben? You can lift twice that. And he would provoke me. He was shaping me. He was discipling me. So what does this mean for you, potential disciple makers? I feel like you need to find a common interest with your disciple. And so I don't, don't just leave it for that monthly catch-up where you might struggle to find time for a coffee and then at the last minute someone cancels. Find something you can do ideally twice a week together and, you know, let's be frank, ideally every day if you can, honestly. You need to start to get invested in your disciple's life. And there are so many things people can do with each other. Meet up at the playground with the kids. Meet up for a walk every other morning. Play chess. I put that in then. Who plays chess anymore? I put this anyway. Uh, Watch films, whatever it is. Leave room enough in that, whatever the activity is, to have conversations and just start to show your life. Start to talk about the things that you're passionate about, what you've learned in church that week, what you and your friends are doing to minister to the community. Just talk about who you are, who you are in Christ. 
Of course, there's going to be times for direct teaching, confronting sin issues, healing. Um, but this is important too. You need to lead them through the example of your life. So, point one, in summary, as a disciple with a disciple heart, you must follow Jesus. But as a disciple maker, you must provide an avenue for your disciple to follow you, following Jesus. So, point two, work to please God, not the disciple. We have to work to please God, not the disciple. It's probably one of the harder parts of being an effective disciple maker. We have to work to please God, not the disciple. Don't get focused on what the disciple thinks of you. Don't get focused on what the disciple wants. I think we can get really wrapped up in the opinions of others, so much so that we can sometimes feel their scorn or anger more clearly than we can feel God's anger. We take Christ's work on the cross for granted. When we're presented with the option of angering somebody on earth or angering Christ, who has already died for us and is faithful and loves us and forgives us, I think we often choose people, which is, I think, really troubling. I think you'll agree with me. But this is not what an effective disciple-maker does. An effective disciple-maker will pattern themselves after Christ, and he always worked to please God over man. Now, I don't think I need to list the number of ways and times Jesus railed against the Pharisees, the religious dogmatics of the day, and you know, overturned the moneylenders' tables, all that. We know those stories. But I think it's important here to show how he did this with his disciples as well. So Mark 4.40, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? You still have no faith. That is clearly a rebuke. And then we get to Mark 8.33, which is pretty much the biggest rebuke of a disciple-maker to a disciple of all time. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. David Thomas said that to me, I don't know what would happen, I'll break down into a little oozing ball of, oh no, I'm Satan. So, good on you, Peter, for getting back out there eventually. And he said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then Luke 9, 18 to 21. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. And then Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anybody. So he didn't just say, don't do it, please don't do it. He strictly forbade them from telling this to anybody. So a disciple maker, if he is to be effective for God's kingdom, must always look to God before he looks to the disciple because he will need to tell God's truth to that disciple. And this may be a rebuke. This may take the form of confronting a sin issue in the disciple's life. This may simply be a correction, but sometimes in this relationship, it's not going to feel, it's not going to be feeling fun. It's not going to feel great. A disciple-maker must rely on God's truth, his word, and always tell it. There are no ifs and buts in the word of God, as Carolyn always says. If we rely on our disciples' opinion of us, we won't always tell the truth. Now, what, I've got a bit of a story here, and I just want to set this up. I'm not here talking about this story to big note myself at all. Honestly, I'm preaching to myself with this sermon, so I'm learning just as much as you guys are. And there have been a number of times where I haven't spoken 
and I've had to repent of it later. But I wanted to show you guys this story about how it feels to confront a sin issue, um, just to show you how it feels, what it feels like to go through that turmoil. And it wasn't easy. So I was discipling a brother of mine, and he was going through a bit of a crisis. So I'm not going to get into what was happening in any detail, but he was just agonizing over a decision and whether or not it aligned with Scripture. And he'd been to a bunch of friends, which included me, and got all of their opinions. And I think he said at least 10. It might have been even more. And nearly every single one of them actually told him that what he wanted to do was fine, that it was biblical, don't worry about it. But it wasn't fine. It was unbiblical. So, being his brother, wanting him to walk in the fullness Christ has for him, I had, to, I had to say something, which was not an easy decision to make. And I really did, I mean, you guys have probably gone through stuff about where you have to com- have a confrontation with the person. I, I felt bad, like, trying to sit down and think about, I have to sit across from him and actually say, what you're doing is wrong. It's not easy always to stand on the word. And, you know, all those attacks come in. Who am I to say something like this? What if this means the end of the friendship? What if he takes offense and just walks off and I never see him again? But, you know, I had to say something. So uh, I laid out exactly why I thought the way I did, and I told him in no uncertain terms that if he continued on his path, he would be in sin. And I also said I wanted to help him, I wanted to walk with him out of it, and I wanted to be there for him. Uh, and he nodded, and he thanked me for my advice, and it was all fine. And we parted ways that day, but I, I felt really nervous that I'd never actually hear from him again. Because I think when a person hears what they want to hear from ten people, and then an uncomfortable truth from one person, which way is it easier going to run? But he, thank God, he listened to me, and I think or I know that he's grown heaps since that decision, and I totally believe he made the right call. I'm totally glad that I actually spoke up. So when you're making a disciple, you have to correct them biblically, but you don't need to go in all guns blazing. You need to actively help them walk out of sin habits, poor behavior, because if you're not doing that, you're just letting them be them who they were already. You're not discipling them at all. You're not, they're not changing their character and you're not changing yours. So there's no point to the discipleship relationship if that person is not being changed. So you need to walk with God always in this. Seek his wisdom about when to speak, how to speak, obviously, but never water down the word of God. So point two in summary then is that we need to work to please God not to work to please the disciple. What the disciple thinks he or she needs may be entirely different to what God knows they need. And we need to operate on his desires, not on the disciples. So point three, third point, last point. When we serve Jesus, we serve the disciple. Point three sounds kind of similar to point two, but There is a difference about what we're going to talk about. Here is what I think is one of Jesus' primary lessons to his disciples. And I want you to note, too, through this whole passage here, that he shows them how to do this by actually doing it first himself. So he's leading them. This is John 13, 1 to 17. 
It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The even I think that's really cool, by the way. He now showed them the full extent of his love. This is what he was doing. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And I love Peter's reply here because it's super over-enthusiastic. Then, Lord, Simon Peter, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, just take a chill pill. A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew he was going to betray him and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Sorry, just for a second there, imagine that. They just skip over the whole part of him actually washing the disciples' feet. But each of the 12 in turn had to sit there and allow Jesus, who was Lord and their Saviour, to get down on his knees and wash their feet. Imagine that. Picture that in your heads. So when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger rather than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now, there's four reasons that Jesus actually did this according to the uh, commentary I read. And the first one was that Jesus might testify his love to his disciples. Two, that he might give an instance of his own voluntary humility. Three, that he might signify to them spiritual washing. And four, that he might set them an example. The meaning of this particular passage of the Bible is so cool. And I, I really encourage you guys, go out and read a commentary on it because it was an epic commentary and it was full of all these goodies. Totally recommend studying this passage in depth. But today, we're only going to look at point four, that he might set them an example. Jesus, in this moment, is leading his disciples, showing them what to do. So point number one of six points. We are to serve Jesus as Lord. And he says this plainly, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Jesus is Lord. Point two, we are to be humble of heart. If we are to walk in the manner of Christ, we are to walk humbly. Christ had often taught his disciples humility, but he clearly models it so that we might never forget again how he lowered himself for us. And as I was reading this back in the, I don't agree with this, but back in the early church, they actually used to practice literally washing people's feet. And when I read that, I laughed and I scoffed. I thought, that's silly. 
Like, he literally meant it, like, literally go out and literally wash people's feet. But then I thought, Jesus did that. How, how dare I? Jesus was humble enough to do it. How dare I try and big note myself and think better of myself than to do that? So he lowered himself for us. We can't forget again how he had a humble heart, and we too have to be humble. Point three, we must be of service to one another. This will mean sacrifice on your part of every sort. If you are to be an effective disciple maker, you must serve your disciple. And you'll give up time, energy, hobbies, television, food, whatever it takes to serve your disciple. Because in making them an effective disciple, you are in turn serving Christ, Christ's will. The sacrifice you make here on earth in building up disciples are the same treasures you store up for yourself in heaven. Point four, we must accept the service of our brethren. I think this one's interesting. The duty to wash one another's feet is actually mutual. Jesus says, wash one another's feet. He doesn't say, wash the feet of others. I think there's a difference. So in this, he implies that we must accept when it's offered with a godly intention, the help and service of others. And again, this will be, this will, where being rooted firmly in a solid disciple-making church will be of great help. And again, David Thomas's book, Finding a Discipleship Environment, is available for free download at www.life-house.net slash fade.pdf. And I don't, I've said it a few times now, honestly, read that book. Full stop. Point five, we must wash one another's feet free from the pollutions of sin. And so, of, of course, we cannot satisfy our disciples' sins. That's Christ's job. Christ has done that. Christ will do that. But we can help them come to the point of repentance through encouragement and correction. So we must at first wash our own feet. Matthew 7, 5 says, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. So then we then, in turn, must restore our disciples gently. Galatians 6, 1 to 2, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. This is interesting. Carry each other's burdens... In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. To stop the pollution of sin in another's life, to carry their burdens. This, again, is going to cost you. It will be a sacrifice of yours. And it goes back to my second point, where we need to serve God all the time and speak the truth. And point six, though this is not the main point, the serving of Christ and the promotion of his kingdom should be what drives us all the time. Note that Jesus ends by saying, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So our Lord is pretty cool. He's so generous, tremendously so here. We are simply doing his will, which is pretty much all we can do for what he's sacrificed for us, which is immense, unfathomable. And yet, in return, he still blesses us. I think that's really cool. Now, to sum all of this incredible passage up, I believe the primary point of this is that you will need... As a disciple maker, you will need to open up your life to sacrifice. It will require a sacrifice on your part to disciple somebody. It will require your time. It will require your effort. It will require your energy. It will require answering the phone late at night or going to the gym when you don't want to. When you make the decision to disciple somebody as Christ has led you to, 
You need to really understand what's going to be required of you and actively decide to sacrifice it. David and Carolyn, again, are both great examples of this. And I think even opening that gym up in their house, in their garage, day after day, must be super hard unless you're extremely extroverted. Surely they must, once in a while, simply want an afternoon off and watch something on TV and just chill out and nobody's showing up that I have to interact with. But I've never heard either of them complain about it or even cancel it. If somebody, anybody is going to show up, so is David. And there have actually been times where I've rocked up and David sort of goes, ah, I thought you weren't coming, I was going to have an afternoon off. But when I'm there, he goes into that gym and he leads me. And he loves it. I think he loves it because he knows when he is there, he's feeding his sheep or feeding the Lord's sheep. So to be a servant of your disciple is to be a servant of Christ. He is who drives us and promotes us and backs us up when we need to speak on these difficult issues. It is he who commands us and it's Jesus who is our master. So I'm going to finish up now by summing up those three main points of discipleship that we've talked about. First, We need to be a follower of Christ and we need to open up our lives to allow somebody to follow us if we're going to disciple somebody effectively. Second, we need to always align ourselves with God before we look for our from disciples' validation for us. And third, when we serve Jesus, we are also going to be serving our disciple. Making a disciple is a commandment of our Lord's and we need to do our utmost to fill it, which means all that I've laid out. So we need to lead, we need to be godly, we need to serve and we need to go out and make disciples. Thank you.